So as I mentioned before, today marks the first Sunday in the season of Lent. Uh, you'll notice I didn't say the first Sunday of Lent because Sundays don't count for Lent. These are uh, Sundays, even in the midst of Lent, are always a celebration day. So you can break your fast if you're doing that or, or do whatever. It's, uh, it's Sunday's Resurrection Day. That's why we meet on Sundays. Lent is the season of personal preparation. For the next several weeks, we're going to be preparing our hearts and our minds to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. The, this whole season is set aside to take a look at kind of the winter of our hearts and to wait with hope uh, for the spring of the soul of Jesus to be born afresh in us, to uh, the, the resurrection power to pump through our veins. And for many of us, the season of Lent has become a season of intentional slowing down, of, of trying to put first things first, and to say no to some of the over-scheduling that happens, it just creeps in in our life throughout the year. Um, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all are written in this way. And what I mean by that is, take Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and the if you were to break that, those books up into thirds, Almost always the first two-thirds of the book is like hyperspace speed. It is uh, the first 30 years of Jesus' earthly ministry crammed into the first two-thirds of the gospel. And it reads like an episode of 24 without being amoral, nationalistic, and, uh, and fear-mongering. So it just reads really fast. But roughly the last third of the four gospels slows down drastically. Uh, the last third goes from fast forward to, to real time. And the last third of each of these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, recount the last days of Jesus on earth in the flesh uh, and his crucifixion and his resurrection. And during the season of Lent, we're going to be slowing down by focusing on these last days with Jesus. Uh, so we're going to pick up our Lenten series that we started two years ago uh, called The Road to the Resurrection. In the story, just let me refresh your memory of where we are. In the story, Jesus has just gone into the temple on what many people know as the triumphal entry. He comes in, and this is the one where they're waving palm branches, and they're putting coats down, uh, and they're saying, Hosanna, which means God save. And they're hoping, the people, the common people are hoping that this is the Messiah. Now what happens is, when Jesus gets into the temple, the religious leaders, the priests, they reject that Jesus is a Messiah or a king. So we enter this story right in the middle of Jesus being challenged in public by different groups of religious leaders. So I'm going to invite you to stand and we'll read... Um, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 23 through 33. And it begins on that day. That's on that day that Jesus is being challenged. He's come into the, the temple, been rejected. So it says, On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, having no children, left his wife to his brother, and so also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You're mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. 
But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the living, uh, the God of the living, or <laughs> he's not the God of the dead, uh, but the God of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Lord, uh, we pray uh, each Sunday that we submit ourselves to your word, that we wouldn't just be rehashing old words or old history, that, but that we would have an encounter with you. So uh, we thank you in advance, Holy Spirit, for your ministry of making the word come alive for us, of reminding us of the teachings of Christ, uh, and helping them to go deep into the soil of our hearts. And I pray that, uh, as always, we would leave here changed for the better uh, than when we arrived. Amen. You may be seated. So Matthew chapters 22 and 23, the ones we're engaged in right now, are commonly referred to by scholars as the confrontation narratives. You can find similar confrontation narratives in Matthew 9 and Matthew 12 as well. And in these sections, uh, different religious authorities challenge Jesus in public. These scenes got me thinking of what, like presidential debates, right? Uh, presidential uh, political, de- political debates. And honestly, when presidential candidates do a national debate on TV, like how influential are they actually? Uh, I think their main role is to give Saturday Night Live fodder for the next year. I mean, that's typically what happens. Um, Maybe they sway some undecided voters, but usually these voters seem more swayed by the candidate's personality than anything, any of the content of their message. Rarely do people who are already committed to a political party actually switch allegiances because of political debates. And I have never heard of a candidate up at a presidential debate say to their opponent, you've got a really good point, I'm going to switch my policy on that. Just, that just never happens. So what is the purpose of these debates? Well, first of all, I think they inform voters uh, as to where each of the candidates stand on the big issues. Second, I think the big thing with debates is they're designed to instill confidence in the people's base that they already support them, whether they had a debate or not. And third, and this is really big, especially in our culture, is to smear the other person, to discredit your opponent. In first century Palestine, teachers would use public debate to try and increase their honor before crowds, while at the same time shaming their adversary. Now, in a modern-day presidential debate, people get noticed. So let's say Frank is running against Schoon, and uh, you guys are going to have a debate. You guys get, first of all, you both have to agree you want to do the debate. Then they set a date. Then they give you some range of questions that you're going to have to answer. So it's all... You have time to prepare. But in the ancient world, what would happen is, let's say now you're rabbis and you're just teaching, like Papa Frank's just teaching, and Schoon comes up with his whole group of disciples and says, it's a walk-off. No, it's not a walk-off. It's like like a street fight for intellectuals. Like he might just interrupt your teaching and try and shame you right there on the spot. You don't even have time to prepare. You just have to react. It's important that we get the setting right and what's happening here with Jesus for two main reasons. First of all, the purpose of these questions that the leaders are asking Jesus are not to learn anything new. Like the Sadducees aren't coming to him asking him about resurrection because they honestly don't know and want to learn from this teacher. What they're doing is trying to trick Jesus into saying something that's going to make him look foolish in public. 
the leaders are trying to discredit Jesus. That's the point. Second, Jesus' responses teach, but not in a comprehensive way. So, for example, uh, right before this passage, uh, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him, so, hey, uh, you're supposed to pay taxes to Caesar. What do you think about that, being a religious leader? Jesus doesn't then take that moment and teach everything he thinks about economics and the relationship between following God and the relationship with the Roman Empire. He, that's just not the point of, of the question. In the same way, the Sadducees asked Jesus a question about the resurrection, and we would be grossly overstressing this passage to expect Jesus to say everything he knows about resurrection right here in this passage. Now, so why even cover it at all? Because we still learn things from Jesus' response. First of all, we learn just how wise and quick-witted Jesus is on his feet. In each of these scenarios, he's confronted without preparation by arguably some of the smartest people uh, in that land of that day. I mean, these are like the scholars and the, the lawyers of the day. And without preparation, he's asked complex questions that on the surface seem paradoxical or designed to intentionally make him choose with one, uh, which would alienate one party or one religious group or the other. They think they're asking him questions that will make him uh, completely alienate his base. And what he does is answer them with such genius that the crowds are often left standing amazed. So the gospel writers record that the crowds are just amazed at his answers. He, see, he simply stuns them every time. Another thing we learn is that Jesus... Uh, from Jesus is that God often works in ways that are outside the box of our limited thinking and interpretations. Jesus will answer these questions based on scripture, but not based on the presuppositions that the Pharisees have, or that the Sadducees have, or that the priests have. So that's an important point. Let's talk about that for a minute. The people questioning Jesus in our story this evening are described as Sadducees. What does that mean? Who are they? Are they like a sect of Pharisee? Are they sort of priests? See, understanding who they were is important because then we can understand the presuppositions that they bring to the question. We know from the historian Josephus and other documents, uh, ancient documents, that the Sadducees were a group of religious authority figures who were given positions of power by Rome and the governing authorities uh, vested by the Roman Empire. They were wealthy. Many of the Pharisees, by the way, weren't wealthy. The Sadducees are a different group. They're wealthy. They are well-connected in society. They are savvy in affairs of politics and economics, and they're willing to compromise some of their Israelite patriotism for the sake of maintaining their power and their position under the Roman Empire. If you look at all the priests at this time and all the Pharisees of this time, the Sadducees are grossly outnumbered. They are a small percentage of the population. They are the elite. The Sadducees, Dale Bruner writes, were the modernists of their world. They seem to have more faith in Rome and the way of the world than in the power of God. In fact, they viewed themselves as blessed for having made peace with Rome. They probably viewed themselves as wiser than the group called, uh, of zealots who are political revolutionaries. And they probably saw themselves as much smarter than the Pharisees, whose zeal for God and adherence to the law 
made them seem uptight to the laity and uncompromising to the Roman Empire. So the Sadducees are kind of these guys who are connected and wealthy, and, you know, they think, we figured out how to schmooze with Rome, how to please them, and also, you know, maintain a, a mild line of, uh, of Judaism. The Sadducees were so well off that they hated the notion of anyone or any movement that might disrupt their counterfeit harmony with Rome. And Jesus was just the type of person who posed a threat to them. Theologically, the Sadducees are what you might call reductionists. Of the entire Old Testament, they only believed that the first five books carried the authority of God. Those five books were attributed to Moses. Most important for our discussion is that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And as an aside, I just want to point out that throughout history, those who have discounted the resurrection of the dead are most often the wealthiest and most powerful in any society. The vast majority of Jewish people in the first century, including the Pharisees, not only believed in the resurrection, but longed for it. The Sadducees, who had most of their earthly needs met with abundant extravagance, for them there's little desire uh, for a resurrection. In fact, why would they want a resurrection of the dead where the weak and the meek will inherit the earth? Hey, they have all the power they ever wanted. Okay, so back to the story. The Sadducees approach Jesus in public and address him as teacher. That word, Rabboni, carries with it an inherent respect. These guys do not respect Jesus. This is a slimy teacher. You know, I mean, this is like so slippery and gross. Clearly is condescending to Jesus. They don't treat Jesus as a teacher that they respect, and they don't ask a question that they really want answered. Instead, they challenge Jesus with a question that they feel is a philosophical checkmate. Like, there's no way he's getting out of this. Moses said, if a man dies, can you just see him like, help me out, teacher. I'm really confused about this. So Moses said, if a man dies, you know, having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Let me just stop there for a second. The Sadducees are quoting uh, a passage out of Deuteronomy. It refers to what's called a Levite marriage. Because God's promise was to bring the nation of Israel into the land he'd set aside for them, it was vital that Israel in those days not intermarry with other nations. Being able to trace your genealogy back to the patriarchs was crucial in that day. Furthermore, each tribe was given a specific plot of land. So, the, you know, the Benjaminites were given this land, and Judah was given that land, and on and on and on for the 12 tribes. And so being able to trace your your name, your genealogy back to a specific tribal name was really important. Uh, in the ancient world, a woman who was married and then widowed and childless was in serious trouble. She could be seen by other men and other families as damaged goods and, and, and mistreated. She could not work in a reputable trade, uh, and she wouldn't have children to take care of her in her old age. So as a way of protecting women and preserving the genetic line, God commanded that the next unmarried male kin of a deceased brother would then marry the wife, which means have children with her. I mean, that was the, one of the main meanings of marriage in, uh, in the ancient world, was to procreate, was to have children to carry on the line. 
And by the way, there are still tribal societies today that practice a, a form of Levite marriage today because any culture you have where the tribal name is, is very important to passing on tradition and, and inheritance and land, you've got to have a system for, uh, for procreation. So some cultures, uh, 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 Bedouin cultures today, sometimes still practice this type of thing. Okay, so that's the basis from Deuteronomy, a law given by God to Moses for Israel. The Sadducees think they've trapped Jesus here because surely the Messiah would not go against the law of God. And yet they offer a scenario that they think clearly expresses the foolishness of the idea of resurrection. They say, uh, now there's seven of us and the first married and died having no children uh, left his wife to his brother, and so also the second and third and down to the seventh. So apparently in this scenario, this hypothetical deal, this woman's married, seven brothers, had no children, then she dies. And they're like, so Jesus, uh, in the resurrection, who's she married to? Right? They're all there, the seven brothers and the wife, and they've all married her. How, how, how does that play out? And I could just see him crossing their arms and smirking to one another, like, let's see him get out of this one. And Jesus just says, you're mistaken. Literally in Greek, you're being led astray. You're wrong about this, and the way that you're, you're thinking about it is leading you down a path of, of, of being further and further away from the truth. You're being led astray. Why? Because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. It's the main point of the passage. The main point is not the legitimacy of liveret marriage. The main point is not angels or exactly what the resurrected body will be like. The main point is vital to remain in the scriptures to know the power of God. When I was ministering down in Marin County, California, uh, I used to use a lot, a lot more Coast Guard illustrations. People have told me they're sick of them sometimes. So anyway, this dear family friend of ours uh, bought me a, uh, a Coast Guard cutter, a remote control boat that's an exact replica of one I was stationed on. Some of you have seen it in my, in my home office. Anyway, it's not a very fast boat. It's battery powered, but it's pretty powerful. It has two motors and two propellers, and so even out at Lake Padden on a kind of windy, choppy day, it can totally go through the chop and, and navigate itself around. So anyway, there's this young guy I used to mentor down there in Marin, and uh, just before Corey and I were moving to Bellingham, I hung out with him one afternoon. I said, dude, you want to try this new boat? So we took it to the, uh, this duck pond, which is by the Civic Center there. And it was a little breezy day. And, you know, there's just not too many ways you can wreck this plastic boat of mine. So I said, yeah, go for it. Just don't get past about 100 feet. Because at 125 feet, uh, the radio controls will lose power and it'll just go dead in the water. So there we are, kind of ripping through. The wind is not really affecting it too much. The chop isn't affecting it too much because it's got these powerful motors and it's cutting through it all. But then this guy gets it out too far. And all of a sudden, the motor's just cut off. And just a minute ago, I mean, it had all of this power inside of it to cut through the wind and the waves. They weren't really, they were just background. But when the power cut off, the wind and the waves became the only reality affecting that boat. And it totally got swept away into the bushes of the, the, the weeds on the other side. Like, obviously, I got it back because it's in my office now. But uh, Now, that is a completely crude analogy. But in some way, shape, or form, that's what can happen to us when we get too far from the center of Scripture. 
See, the scriptures communicate not just information, not just like stories that are old or information about, about people or about God. They communicate God's character. They challenge our character. They remind us of lo- God's love and, and, and his faithfulness. But, but there's something else that happens. It's not just like a head reminder. It's that the Spirit takes those words and, and actually helps us believe, yes, God is faithful. He is powerful. He is over all of these situations in my life. They tell us of his power uh, and his activity in the lives of his people now and throughout time. They tell of a God who is master of nature and physics, who's creator of heaven and earth, who intervenes in time and space. They tell of us of a, of a God who defeats death itself and offers us forgiveness and new life in Christ. See, when we get away from the scriptures, we begin to forget who God is and who we are. And the reality that the forces of the world don't have the final say in history or in your story. If we forget that God's power trumps politics and cancer and death and oppression, you begin to think that the ultimate forces in the world are what you can see and touch and taste and feel, what's in your pocketbook and what's on TV. The wind and the waves of life pushing you places you feel powerless to resist. That's the problem for the Sadducees, according to Jesus. In the season of Lent, I, I just ask you, what is your relationship with the Scriptures? Do you currently practice a, a regular time of reading the Scriptures, of being immersed in them, of uh, some form of study? Listen, I'm the first one to say I... I'm not big on the rules. I, I, I'm not saying that as a guilt trip. I'm not saying that as, to be a good Christian, you've got to read your Bible X amount of time a day. All I know is that when I get away from, sin, from the center of Scripture, I go bad places. And that's what Jesus is telling the Sadducees here. These guys are religious leaders, by the way, and he's calling them out on their relationship to Scripture. So I just asked you, you know, this is a season where, uh, where, where it's built in in the church calendar that we evaluate our lives and we say, you know what, I want to cut some of these things out that are frivolous in my life, and maybe I want to include um, service or, uh, hey, why not uh, a steady habit of reading the Scripture, of being in the Word of God. I hope you see each Sunday um, in the preaching moment, and I know that you do because so, so many of you have said this, I, I want to have Scripture be caught for you, not just taught by me. You see, I want you to see that the Scripture is life-giving, that it is fascinating, that it is, I mean, I, I love it. And I want you to catch that um, it, it is a source of life, not just a source of information. So that's my, my heart and my prayer. I encourage you to consider your relationship with, with Scripture. The Scriptures remind us that God is at work, and that that work is good, despite what the headlines say, or how you feel from day to day. The scriptures helped 21 martyred by ISIS last week remain faithful, knowing that death is not the end for those in Christ. The scriptures point to a life available to us that is far more abundant than the things I see on Super Bowl commercials. Actually, those were kind of depressing, but the other commercials on TV, the infomercials, or uh, the vision of success were presented in movies and magazines and music. The Sadducees thought resurrection 
simply meant resuscitation, like some kind of reincarnation where people who died would then be raised back exactly how they were into the same kind of world that they died from. In that case, a woman who had seven husbands, who's then raised from the dead with these seven husbands in the same kind of world that they all died in, is in a serious ethical dilemma. (laughs) This is, of course, why they thought the resurrection was foolishness. If that's how it is, that is ridiculous. Like, how do you reconcile that? But Jesus says they don't understand what they're talking about. In the resurrection, there's not going to be marriage in the same way that we know marriage. Part of the institution of marriage in the Jewish world was for procreation. But in the new creation, our resurrected bodies don't need to reproduce because they'll be immortal. That's what it means that we'll be like the angels. It doesn't mean that that we're going to be where the angels are. The angels exist in the realm called heaven. Heaven in the resurrection is coming to earth. We'll be raised into a new creation. Ah, I love it. And it doesn't mean that we become angels. In fact, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in early Christian history is there an inkling that human beings die and then become like angels. That idea has crept into popular religion through poetry and, um, and art and maybe mostly through It's a Wonderful Life and films like that where, oh, a bell rang and an angel just got its wings and, you know, that kind of thing. Ideas like that actually creep into the way we think when, we, uh, when we're not in Scripture. So speaking of kind of losing sight on Scripture, as you know, I scratched my cornea on Friday. Yesterday I'm wearing this eye patch, and uh, it's so disorienting. Like, I couldn't see left, so at one point I ran over Samara because I turned left, and she was there, and she's only that tall. And we have, okay, so we have gummy bear multivitamins. I know they're full of sugar, nutrition people, but anyway, so... We have the gummy bear multivitamins. I was like, I want an orange one. Corey throws me the orange one. I think I'm going to catch it. Boom, right in the head. Like, no depth perception. That's what it's kind of like when we take one eye off the word of God. We're, we're meant to have one eye in scripture and one eye on the world we live in. And we're to bring the two together so that our lives are not uh, ghettoed out in ju- just the scriptures and we don't pay attention to the word, but we're supposed to, to take what we see in scripture and and the way of God, and submit our world, submit our lives in the world to the way of God. The Sadducees seem to have taken one of their eyes off Scripture, and therefore they've taken their eye off the power of God to do something new and unnatural according to the laws of physics and the laws of reason. Jesus knows the Sadducees only see or only believe the first five books of the Bible are authoritative. They highly revered Moses. Instead of having a debate with them over the, uh, uh, the merits of the rest of the Bible, he just says, okay, you want to believe that? Let me quote something from one of the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus quotes from Exodus, a book attributed to Moses. Have you not read what was spoken? Not by Moses, by the way, but by God. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's the God of the living not the dead. It's really genius when you think about it. They want to quote Moses, so Jesus quotes God speaking to Moses at the quintessential moment of of Moses' life when God meets him in the burning bush. God, Yahweh, the covenant keeper, the ever-existing one, the ever-active one, the ever-creating one, speaks to Moses as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
three men who had been dead over 500 years by the time God is speaking to Moses. God does not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as if it was in the past. And he doesn't say, I am the God of the dead men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He clearly is the God of the patriarchs who had been dead for 500 years. And he will continue to be their God because he's faithful and will resurrect his people in the new age. Jesus' point is that from the very beginning, the story of God in Israel, uh, back in the first books of the Bible, the scriptures point toward a life beyond the grave for God's people. The Apostle Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, Jesus was resurrected from the dead according to the scriptures. And even though there are several psalms that point toward resurrection of the dead, and of course Isaiah chapters 45 through 55 have lots to say about that, I don't think that Paul is thinking of a bunch of single scripture memory verses, proof texts, when he says that Jesus rose from the dead according to the scriptures. Jesus rose from the dead according to the scriptures in the sense that all of scripture seems to be be, being fulfilled in Jesus's life and in Jesus's death and in his resurrection and in in his ascension and in the sending of the Holy Spirit to the new people of God the church every man and woman and child who places their faith in jesus and that is such good news it's good news it's not wishful thinking the the good news is not what oprah says will happen when you die because that changes every other year and and it's not the shifting story of, of of pop culture or whatever um you know Robin Williams movie or whatever, you know, about what the afterlife is going to be like. The good news is not found in books like Heaven is for Real or Ten Ways to Be a Healthy and Wealthy Christian. The good news is found in Scripture. It's the continuing story of the God who created and the God who extends grace and the God who died for us and the God who defeated death. It's the same God who did these things who is the God who promises forgiveness and new life, and resurrection. And the big question of the passage then isn't just, are you reading your Bible? Have you placed your faith in the God of the Bible, in the point of the Bible, which is Jesus 